Amen. Well, welcome, guys, to The Grove. Uh, my name is Caleb. I am one of the pastors here at The Grove. So glad that you are here with us this afternoon uh, as we are continuing our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, so last week, we gave a little bit of background on the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, this is the second letter that we have from Paul to this church that he helped start in Corinth. And as we saw last week, we won't go through all of it again, but in summary, it was up and it was down. It was hot and it was cold. Um, it was in and then they were out. It's the philosopher Katy Perry would say. Things were rocky with Paul and the church in Corinth. It was complicated. Things were okay. They had a falling out. But here now is the reconciliation with Paul in this church. And so Paul gets to the very end of this section talking about new covenant ministry and talking about the reconciliation that they now have. And Paul's going to change the subject here in chapter 8, is where we're going to be this afternoon. Uh, over the next three weeks, we're going to be walking through chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And as Paul shifts here, he's shifting now in his letter as he's going to be calling this church in Corinth to give money to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul's going to shift here in these next two chapters and give us the most focused and most expansive verses we have in the Bible on money and giving and generosity. So you can, you can feel the tension in the room as it rises. I heard one pastor say, if you, if you want to get people uncomfortable, talk about prayer, talk about money. Well, why? Because there's always this sense in which we feel like there's more that we could be doing. There's always a sense of guilt that we feel when the topics get brought up. But I hope what we see today and over the next few weeks is that's not how the Bible talks about money. It's not how the Bible talks about giving. Or maybe you've come in and you've been burned in your past. Whether you've been a part of a church or maybe you just read headlines. You don't have to go very far back in history to see stories of large churches that have abused money or manipulated people in order to get more or cover up or embezzle. And maybe there's just this kind of distrust you have of the church and money. Oh, great, now the pastor is about to make me feel guilty and make me give a lot of money. Or maybe he's going to tell me that if I give money, God will give me 10 times more. I don't know if you've seen those uh, television uh, preachers late at night, maybe not even late at night anymore, but they'll say, hey, if you give to my ministry, God will give you fivefold, tenfold, twentyfold. Right, it's a strain, it's not even a strain, it's, a, it's an offshoot of Christianity called the prosperity gospel, and it's nowhere in the Bible. I've always wanted to call one of those lines and say, hey, so you're telling me if I give you $100, God will give me 1000 Listen, I've got a better idea. How about you give me 100 That way then God gives you 1000 and it all works out. But it's funny. I don't think they'd ever take me up on that. And so we walk in kind of hesitant, money, giving. And there are some churches, I think, that in the midst of that understand the delicate nature of it and go, hey, we're just not going to talk about it then. There's been so much misuse of it, we won't even touch it. Right? There's one church that I was at that almost said that as a badge of honor. We've been around for 10 years. We've never talked about money. And it was out of the heart to say, well, there have been so many that have been hurt by it. We don't want to misuse it or abuse it. But I don't think that is the proper response. And I say that because I just look at the life of Jesus and I see how often he talked about money. And if Jesus talked about it, it's something that we need to talk about as well. This is one of the things that, uh, as, as us, we're, ex we're committed to expository preaching. What that means is we just walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We're not skipping over the hard parts. We have been going through 2 Corinthians. This part is just next to where we are. 
knowing that this is inspired by God and it's what we need today. So if God inspired Paul to write this letter to the church in Corinth, there's something in it for us today. So rather than manipulating or misusing or just avoiding it completely, I think the way for us to walk forward is to open up God's word and say, God, how have you told us to think about our relationship with our money? And so that's where we'll be then today and for the next three weeks as Paul is writing back now to this church and encouraging them to give money to the church in Jerusalem. They began the offering back in 1 Corinthians, again, had the falling out, things got weird, but then they reconciled. And Paul is now coming back and saying, hey, complete what you started. Finish the work that you began and take this collection to the church in Jerusalem. So let's read before we dive in. In chapter 8, we'll be in verses 1 through 15 this afternoon. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller numbers. We'll be in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability, and even beyond their ability, of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this is a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving advice because it is profitable for you, who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task So that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be a relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality, as it is written. The person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. So as we look at these 15 verses, what I want to do this afternoon is see seven principles from this text about giving and generosity. Seven principles, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, is just as much written to the church here in South Lake County, showing us the grace of generosity through seven principles of giving and generosity and our money. So, principle number one, we see it in verse one, and it's this, that giving isn't based on how much money you have, it's based on how much grace you have. Giving isn't based on how much money you have, it's based on how much grace you have. So as Paul is 
turning here to the church in Corinth, and he's writing to them about money and about giving, you would think that maybe he would go to biblical principles, financial stewardship, how to save money, why they should give, anything like that. But notice in verse 1 how Paul begins and how he talks about it. He looks and gives the example of these churches in Macedonia, in Berea, and Thessalonica, and Philippi. And he begins by showing their example. But notice how he talks about it in verse 1. He said, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about what? The grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. As Paul puts forward this example of these churches and their generosity to the church in Jerusalem, he doesn't say, look at how much they gave. He says, look at how God's grace affected them. And it's not just here. Eight times in the next two chapters, Paul will use that Greek word, charis, the word which means grace. Uh, Only 16 times in the whole book does he use that word. So half the time he's using it in these two chapters. And so when Paul's talking and giving his sermon on giving, it's more a sermon on grace. He's putting forward saying, listen, what is underneath isn't just an act to be done, but a relationship with God and experiencing his grace. It should shift. It should change. It's a sermon on grace from beginning to end. So he continues then in their example and shows that first it's not about how much you have, it's about how much grace you have. Do you have that understanding of relationship with grace, what God has given to you, how it then frees us to give to others? He continues then in verses 2 through 4. Shows the second principle in giving is that if you aren't generous when you don't have much, you won't be generous when you have a lot. Secondly, if you aren't generous when you don't have much, you won't be generous when you have a lot. There is a a temptation, a pull, a lie that would say, well, if I just had more, then I would be generous. If I just could pay off this debt, then I would be generous. So I just got out of this season of life or got that promotion, then I would start giving. But look at the example that Paul gives of these churches in Macedonia in verses 2 through 4, and look at their circumstance. It says that during a severe trial brought about by affliction... So they're currently in some severe trial where they're feeling afflicted. They're feeling pressed in on every side. And Paul continues. He says, it's in the middle of that that their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you hear the two things that mix together for the churches in Macedonia? Abundant joy and extreme poverty. Those are the ingredients for the wealth of generosity that these churches give. Paul is saying these churches didn't have much, but they interacted. They had an experience with God's grace that fundamentally changed the way that they saw their stuff. And they came together, even though they were in a severe trial and affliction, even though they were in the middle of extreme poverty, being pushed down to the ground, they had something else. And what was it? They had an abundant joy. They had an overflowing joy that in that experience of God's grace, it gave them a different kind of joy that began to overflow that said, I don't care what circumstance I'm in, I'm going to step into the mission of God and give freely to it because I know that my money will never be enough for me, but God's grace is. And those were the things that mixed together, that they gave when they didn't have anything to give. And isn't it interesting, time and time again in the Bible, the examples of generosity are often the people that don't have much to give. There's the widow who gave two mites. 
Jesus holds her up as the example of giving. Two mites would buy you maybe uh, three grapes, scholars say. That's not a hyperbole. She could have literally bought probably about three grapes. But she came and she gave everything she had. And Jesus says, that's how we're to give. That's the heart that God is looking for. And it's the same with these churches in Macedonia, that they had extreme poverty, but they also had an abundant joy. And that abundant joy overflowed into a wealth of generosity. And Paul can say, I testify, verse 3, according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged to earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. So Paul didn't show up in Macedonia begging them for money to take to Jerusalem. Paul shows up in Macedonia, and it almost seems like Paul's telling them, guys, don't give all of this. And they're begging, saying, Paul, please let us share in the privilege of being a part of this ministry. That's the understanding and perspective that they had of what they were doing, both as a church and financially. They said, we're not running an organization. We're not primarily a business. We are partnering together, sharing in the ministry of the saints. So what happens to the Christians in Jerusalem might as well be happening to the saints in Philippi or in Thessalonica or Berea. They said, we have that kind of partnership. That's the relationship that they had, and they were begging Paul to be a part of it, even though they didn't have much. Friends, if you aren't generous when you don't have much, you won't be generous when you have a lot. Third, we see the third principle in verse 5, that we are called to give your entire life to the Lord and then give some of your stuff to his mission. Give your entire life to the Lord and then give some of your stuff to his mission. Look at verse 5. Paul says, they gave beyond what we had hoped. And instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. Now, Paul isn't necessarily talking about an order in which they came and checked off boxes. Paul's putting kind of the spiritual emphasis forward and saying, these churches in Macedonia, they understood that they were owned by God. They were bought by him with a price. And they gave their life to him. And whenever they began to see, God, you own not only my stuff, but you own all of me. You own my career, my family, my life, my dreams, my aspirations. God, you are my not only Savior, but also Lord, and I am here to follow you. You own it all, and anything I give back to you is already yours to begin with. And when that comes first, giving ourselves, our entire life first to the Lord, it becomes a lot easier to give some of our stuff to his mission. When we see that our life is not about us, when we see that in following Jesus, he becomes our king, it's easy to give him part when we've already given him the whole. Paul put it this way in his first letter we have to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, he said, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. The church in Corinth had to get this understanding. I am not my own. God has bought me. I am his. My life, everything is his. So I first, when we think about giving, again, it's not just about writing a check. It's not just about doing something on our Christian to-do list. It's not about doing math to figure out how things fit into the budget. It begins first with saying, God, I am yours, all of me. Take what you want. Lead me wherever you want. 
It's all yours. And now I will take some of this to give to you secondarily. That's the order in which we see. When we realize that, we won't fall into the lie that our stuff is our own. Friends, one of the great lies that we've fallen for in our culture is that all the stuff that we have is ours. This Western kind of capitalism idea, friends, it's not true. It's God's. We are just stewards of it. That's the way the Bible talks about it. It's all his to begin with. He owns us. And if we don't see the relationship between our, with money and our relationship with God, and how those two interact, then we will forever stunt our spiritual maturity. It's a zero-sum game. You cannot love both money and God. You can't serve both money and God. There is a choice, one or the other. Pastor and commentator Kent Hughes put it this way when referring to this passage. He said, Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money. There's a way for us to give and our hearts still to be far from him. But there is no way to fully follow him without also giving him our money. So that's what we see third, is that we are to first give ourselves to the Lord, and then we give part of our stuff to his mission. Fourth, fourth principle we see in verses 6 through 8, that generosity isn't a demonstration of wealth, but a demonstration of love. Generosity is not a demonstration of wealth, how much stuff we have, what it is we can show off. Biblical generosity is a demonstration of love. Look at verses 6 through 8. Paul then has finished showing the example of the churches in Macedonia, and he now comes back to the church in Corinth. He's saying in verse 6, We urge Titus that just as he had begun back in 1 Corinthians, so he should also complete among you, again, you hear it again, this act of grace. Paul views it through an act of grace. He sees grace covering all of it. He tells them, you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us. Remember, Corinth was a very affluent city. It was growing. It was young. These people in this church more than likely uh, had a lot of money. They were gifted, probably businessmen, businesswomen. And Paul is telling them, you excel in all of these things. And he then challenges them, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command but rather, by means of diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. Paul is saying, if you as a church step into this act of grace, and you come together to give generously and sacrificially for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, you not only have then experienced the grace of God in your life, but you are then demonstrating the genuineness of your love towards these other Christians. It is driven and motivated, motivated and expresses itself in love. Now, we've got to be careful because our culture defines love in a very different way than the Bible does. Right? Love is not a Nicholas Sparks book and our terrible movie. It's not either one of those. Love is not just a feeling of butterflies you get as you're walking through the supermarket and see somebody you might be attracted to. Love is not just a fleeting emotion that comes and goes. Love in the Bible is rock solid. It is a covenant. It is self-emptying. It gives of itself. It does not take. That is what biblical love is. It looks in the eyes of another and says, I'm not going anywhere, and I am here to lay down my life to serve you. And Paul is saying, if you want to express your love, that kind of love, then enter into this act. 
If we want to try to define love from this passage here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, Paul is saying, you know how to demonstrate your love? Give of what you have. Empty yourself for the benefit of others. Or more fully, I'd put it this way, that love is the overflow of joy in God that eagerly empties itself for the benefit of others. Love is the overflow of joy. You remember the church in Macedonia, the churches in Macedonia? They gave because of a wealth and abundance and overflow of their joy. So love is an overflow of joy in God, not in our stuff, not in things of this world, but finding our joy in him that then moves us to eagerly empty, to beg to be a part of this ministry, to want to eagerly anticipate and empty ourselves. Why? For the benefit of others. That's what love is, as I would define it, according to this passage. And that has a million different applications in our lives. That love is an abundance and overflow of joy in God that empties, eagerly empties itself for the benefits of others. But here in particular, when we think about our stuff and we think about money, we think about giving, we see that love loosens the grip that we have on our stuff. Love turns our gaze from ourselves out to others. Love joyfully gives away because others are more important than ourselves. Love has taught us this lesson from Jesus, that it is better to give than it is to receive. And if you've ever given, you know this to be true. There's that feeling of joy and liberation that you feel when you find in an act of giving your generosity to somebody else. We feel that, and we know that when we give, it's not just losing. There's also something that we're gaining. We find that there's this deep-seated joy that we step into and experience when we do that. When you empty yourself for the benefit of others. I would go as far to say that even if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me, let me just first of all say, I'm so glad you're here at church. And I hope that this is a church where you feel like you can come. You can come with questions you have. You can come and have an honest dialogue about who God is. But I want to I also put this forward to you if you're here and you're not a Christian. That I would say even to you, if you've given or been generous, there is this feeling of joy that you felt as well. And the thing I would ask you is where do you think that comes from? Because if God doesn't exist and we are in fact just an accidental cluster of cells that has slowly evolved over billions and billions of years to bring us to a point now through evolution in which we have been deeply trained to fight only for ourselves, for self-preservation, that deeply ingrained in the, in the deepest parts of who we are is a desire to preserve ourselves. How then out of that uh, DNA, out of that wiring, do we find joy when we give of ourselves? Where does that come from? Unless we were created and our creator stamped his image onto us. And we see that maybe in those moments we are acting as we should and reflecting the one who created us. Right? That's why at Christmas, every year, People are giving, people are generous, and there's this thing called the Christmas spirit. Yes, it's all the Frank Sinatra songs in the world and chestnuts roasting on open fires or fake fires here in Florida, whatever it might be. But the Christmas spirit is one that says, I love to give. Where do you think that comes from? 
It's not just a season. It's rooted in the very incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we start to think more about what he's done through Christmas, we then begin to be a lot freer. This is exactly what Paul says as he moves then into his next point, that the clearest picture of an overflow of joy and the eagerly emptying oneself for the benefit of others is found not in ourselves, not around us, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This gets us to our fifth principle in verse 9, that we see the greatest giver in history is God himself. The greatest giver in history in the entire universe is God himself. This is the linchpin of Paul's entire argument here. He's trying to invite the church in Corinth in to give. He shows the example of the churches in Macedonia. He encourages them to express their love, but he hinges and finds himself founded on this verse in verse 9 as he says, because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Paul is not talking about Jesus having a lot of money and going and then becoming poor and wanting to give that money to everybody that follows him. That's not true of the churches in Macedonia. It's certainly not true of our churches today. Paul is not saying Jesus became actually poor, but what he's saying is that here's the spiritual um, description of what happened in the incarnation and the cross of Christ, that Jesus Christ was rich. He was in heaven, seated on the throne of God. He was king of kings, and angels surrounded him and praised him and adored him. He was in perfect harmony with himself in the triunity of the Trinity, and there was no issues that were there. And what did God choose to do? He chose to be born in Israel, a small, no-name country in world history. Not only in Israel, but this little hill, backwoods, Groveland kind of town in Nazareth. Love Groveland, if you're from Groveland. Jesus would have been born there over Claremont. Jesus comes and he's born in Nazareth. A few hundred people. He's raised a carpenter. He sleeps. He eats. He has three years of public ministry. And then he is betrayed. He's put on trial. He is tortured. He is crucified. And all the sin of a believing world is placed on him. And he dies in the place of those whom he has saved. And the wrath of God is poured out on him in our place. And he dies as a substitute for our sins so that we might be saved. He was rich, but he became poor. Why? For your sake. So that we who are poor, we who are separated from God with no hope of eternal life, with no hope to be saved, with no hope of being redeemed and delivered from our bondage to slavery, which we have chosen, we are headed to hell to stand before a just judge and punishment of our sin. We were poor, but through Christ, we then become rich. We become, as the Bible describes, co-heirs with Christ. That's what God has done for us 
in Christ. Paul is reminding them in verse 9, do not forget the gospel, that your generosity cannot be seen as a way in which trying to earn favor from God, but see that it is grounded on the gospel, that there is nothing that you could have done to become rich, but God came when you were dead and made you alive together in Christ. God came when you were poor and he made you rich. So now your giving can be done as a free expression of worship and not trying to earn any kind of love or expression or favor from God himself because it has already been finished and declared and you are accepted as a son and a daughter through Jesus Christ. Paul's saying you can give freely then because you are not owned by your stuff. You are owned by the king of kings. He's come to get you. And so don't forget that, that as you give, you are not just going through religious motions trying to earn favor, but it begins here. Our giving is motivated and driven by grace as we see God himself as the greatest giver in the history of the world. And Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 2 that we are to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. You hear similar language in Philippians 2 and here in 2 Corinthians 8 9. What was that mindset that Jesus had? Well, he was existing in the form of God, but did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. He was rich. But instead, he emptied himself, and he became the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That he was rich, but he became poor. He emptied himself. That's the way that Paul describes it in Philippians 2. Elsewhere in John 3, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. You hear the language of an offering, of generosity. God gives. He gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What motivated God to give? What fueled that offering for him? For God so loved the world. God's love for you motivated him to give you his son. God's love for you motivated him to give you himself. You see that his offering was an expression and extension of his love. The same thing that Paul is writing to the church here in Corinth. One other place as we look at this gift of Jesus what then drove Jesus? Why did he continue on in this path? of emptying himself, of becoming poor. Well, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, it says that as we run this race with endurance that lies before us, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. I could talk about it the rest of the time, but it's not pertinent to the text. We'll come back to it another sermon. But we're to run keeping our eyes on Jesus, fixed on him. What did Jesus do? Jesus was the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus empty himself? Why did he become poor? Because he was driven by love and fixed on an abundant joy that was set before him. The joy that he was experiencing as he looked forward, both glorifying God and to save you, Jesus fixed his eyes on that joy and said, because of this abundance of joy, I then will endure the shame of the cross. 
and I will give myself. And so we see again joy and love motivating and driving, giving as God himself did. That Jesus was motivated by love and filled with joy. So he emptied himself for the benefit of others. Friends, that is the best example of giving in the history of the world. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. Whenever God sent his son down to earth, he emptied heaven's bank accounts in order to purchase you, in order to come to earth and dwell among us. Jesus exchanged the splendor of heaven for the floor of a stable. He exchanged the praise of angels for the company of cattle. He exchanged the glory of the throne for an agony of the cross. He was laid low so that you would be lifted up. He took on the form of a servant so that you might be set free. He was tempted so that you might overcome. He was rejected so that you might be accepted. He went into the far country so that you could return home as the prodigal. He was torn apart so that you might be made whole. God died so that you might live. And friends, he was laid in a tomb so that one day you could walk out of yours. He was rich, but for your sake, he became poor. So that us in our poverty might be lifted up and become rich. Friends, we are called to be great givers because we worship the greatest giver in history. Principle number six, verses 10 through 12. What is our response then to this gift of grace? Paul makes it clear, God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Sixth principle in giving, God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Look at verse 10 then. Paul turns to them. He says, in this matter then, I'm giving advice because it is profitable for you. Who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also, finish the task. So that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. This is the only command that Paul gives in these two chapters. Notice Paul isn't coming saying, here's what you have to do. That giving is not, Paul saying, just an obligation. Paul is saying it's an act of worship. It's a free will act of worship. And the only command that Paul gives here is to say, now finish this task. And he's pointing out the eagerness that they felt. See that in verse 11, that there was this eager desire that there may also be a completion according to what you have. Verse 12, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has and not according to what he does not have. Paul is saying that when it comes to giving, God doesn't need your money. God owns everything. He's the creator of the world. He speaks and things go to be. God isn't relying on the mint in order to give him money. God could just speak and then he could just get all the money that he wanted. He doesn't need our money to operate. Right? We see this even in the Old Testament. In Psalm 50, Psalmist says this in speaking for God on behalf of God. He says, I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountain and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and everything it is, in is, is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. The psalmist is saying when, in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, when they came to give animals, goats, and bulls, God's saying, hey, I don't need your cattle. 
I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm good. Right? If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't, I don't need this because I need a snack. It's not what's happening in, in the sacrificial system. God is saying, instead, come and bring a thanksgiving offering. Come as an expression of your worship and of your heart. As you come then to worship me, let this be a response to what I have done. And it's the same now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. God doesn't need our money. He's after a thankful heart. Right? Notice that Paul refuses to, te- to tell the Corinthians how much to give. And he is instead so focused on telling them how to give. Paul doesn't come and say, hey, I need this much. Here's the chart. Fill it up. Here's how much you guys make. Let's make it happen. Paul comes to say, remember the grace of Jesus Christ. May that grace influence you to be able to give freely and eagerly, like the churches in Macedonia, to eagerly want to come and to bring about this thing to completion, to finish the task. Paul didn't focus on a budget. He focused on their hearts. Why would Paul do that? Because Paul was convinced that the quantity of their giving would flow from the quality of their changed hearts. So he didn't come with rules or obligations or more religious expectations. He came preaching the grace of Jesus Christ. He said when that grace gets a hold of us, it changes our orientation with this world. And it changes our orientation and relationship with money. And he wants to make sure he's always hammering the grace of Jesus Christ to transform our hearts to be able to follow him freely. And Paul is saying that when that happens, we will then eagerly want to begin to step into what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be generous just like Jesus was to us. And notice towards the end, he doesn't then say, okay, now eagerly want to go and give your 10%, your tithe. I don't know if you grew up in a church tradition that said that's the Christian expectation, give 10%. That's what we're supposed to do. But friends, let me, just, let me just say, as clearly as I can, read the New Testament. You aren't going to find that anywhere. It was there in the Old Testament, but it's nowhere in the New Testament. Instead, what we see in the New Testament is this call for generous, joyful, and sacrificial giving. Paul isn't saying, here's your quota, make sure you meet it. Paul is saying, look and stare at the grace of God. And then look at the stuff you own and be free to give as you see fit and according to what you have. Do you hear the phrase that he has in there? Verse 11 that you would bring this to completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable. According to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Friends, if there's just a blanket 10% expectation for every single person, that may mean for some people it would break them financially and it would be a sin to give that much. And for others, there may be others who are so well off that giving 10% wouldn't come close to being generous in your life. And so God says, take the rule out and step in and look at the grace of God and look at your life and give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Come and give freely, give joyfully, give generously, give sacrificially to be a part of this ministry of the saints that's happening here on earth as we then are driven to give out of a thankful and worshipful heart for what God has given us. Right? I know that Rick Warren does what he calls reverse tithing, where he gives away 90% of his income. Friends, there are examples all over the place, but what we see is that God isn't calling us to a specific number. He's calling us to give proportionally, proportionate giving. And we see that what makes a, great, a gift great in the sight of God is not the amount on a check, but the posture of our hearts. Do we come in worship, 
responding, saying, God, I give back what is already yours, knowing that this stuff doesn't own me, but knowing that you do, and I get to take part in the blessing and the privilege of this ministry as we eagerly then want to give both to his local church and to others around us who are in need, stepping into those moments. And finally, number seven, seventh principle we see in 13 through 15 is that giving isn't a one-way street. Giving isn't a one-way street. Paul finishes here in 13 through 15 and tells them, hey, it's not that church in Corinth, you guys need to give everything you have so then the church in Jerusalem will have all this money and then you guys are going to suffer and they're going to be having a great time. He says, no, it's a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need. So if their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality, as it is written, the person who had much did not have too much. And the person who had little did not have too little. Paul is there quoting Exodus 16 at the very end. Whenever God sends manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. The Israelites wake up. There's dew all over the ground. Turns out that was bread that God was giving them to be able to feed them. So everyone went out and gathered it. Some people gathered more. Some people gathered less. And then we see that they would then go. Those who had more would give to those who had less. So that those who had much did not have too much. And the person who had little did not have too little. Paul is saying the church, just like in the Old Covenant, is to come around to be able to support and care for one another. This isn't a level of exact equality across the board, but one in which there is not a sense in which we are hoarding up our own stuff to the detriment of those around us in our church or to churches around us in the world. Knowing that giving is not just a one-way street. That's what Paul is saying. As you give to the church in Jerusalem, they too will give to you. Now, he may be talking financially, but probably not. The church in Jerusalem didn't have much money, and the church in Corinth had a lot. It probably wasn't going to reverse that. But Paul is saying that there was a sense of a debt that the church in Corinth owed to the church in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the church that sent Paul out to the Gentiles in the first place. The Gentiles, this church in Corinth, everyone who wasn't Jewish, had a relationship with God because Paul came and brought this gospel and this new covenant ministry to them. And Paul is saying, you receive that blessing, that richness from this church, you then should share in the richness that you've given to them. And so for us, as we partner as a church with other churches around the world, friends, it's not just a one-way street. That what happens is a win at Grace Church in Miami or Nuova Vita Church in Salerno, Italy, what happens there whenever 10 people are baptized in Italy or whenever grace begins to get more and more people that are becoming part of their church or non-Christians who are coming to their church or that maybe they are moving into a more permanent facility. Friends, those are not wins for those churches. Those are wins for us because we are sharing and partnering in the ministry with them. And Paul is saying that as you give, it is not just a one-way street. So these are the principles, seven principles we see and how to give and how to think about our money in these 15 verses. Next week, Paul will shift and say, now how do we think about accountability? What are things we put around us to, to put structures of accountability in our lives? And finally, in chapter 9, Paul will lay out what are our true motivations for giving. But friends, what we see here in these 15 verses is that we give because of what we've been given. Grace received leads to joy overflowed and love expressed. May we be a generous people, friends, because we worship a generous Savior. Let's pray. God, we are absolutely blown away at who you are and what you've done for us. And God, as you have so kindly opened up
your word to be able to show us how we're supposed to think about money. God, how we're supposed to think about our stuff. God, would you give us grace to see what you've called us into? God, there wouldn't be guilt. There wouldn't be obligation. But God, you begin to shift our orientation with how we think about stuff in this world. God, we see as an act of worship, stepping into and participating in your mission because of what you have given us. To see that we give back what you have already given us because you are our greatest treasure and you are enough. God, the great lie that money tries to tell us is that we need it to be able to be satisfied. Just had a little bit more, then it'd be enough. But God, help us see the truth that Jesus alone is our treasure, that his grace is sufficient for us. And then when that is true, then our hands begin to open up and we begin to live free from the love of money and begin to enter into a worshipful relationship with you, our generous God. And we love you and we're so grateful for all you've done for us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.